0: pencil or a pen or or whatever you want to do to separate those two. And and as you're turning there, I want to read a portion of a speech. A portion of a speech. This is a, like I said, Memorial Day is a day of remembrance. A day of uh, solemn remembrance. I, myself, am a patriot. I, I believe And what our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution says, uh, and I I believe wholeheartedly that when our Founding Fathers brought together this nation, they truly believed they were doing the right thing. Based on the words that are written in the Declaration of Independence and based on the words that are written in the Constitution, Freedom was their utmost desire for everyone that resided in the United States of America. The words of this speech, as you're turning to John 15 and Romans 12, I'm going to read a few few words. In your hands, my fellow citizens, more than mine, will rest the final success or failure of our course, Since this country was founded, each generation of Americans has been summoned to give testimony to its national loyalty. The graves of young Americans who answer the call to service surround the globe. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it, And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask us here the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking His blessing and His help, but knowing that here on earth God's work must truly be our own. Those are words from John F. Kennedy on January 20th, 1961, in his inaugural address. Memorial Day is a day, like I said, of solemn remembrance of those who have gone on before us in their quest to defend freedom and democracy, to protect the sovereignty of our nation, and to protect our right to believe in a sovereign creator. Memorial Day has its has it at its inception as early as May of 19, excuse me, of May of 1865. When the Civil War ended, as early as May of 1865, there was a commemoration of those soldiers who gave their lives on both sides. Through the years uh, more and more towns and, and counties and municipalities started to to commemorate the loss of life that was so great on American soil, as was the Civil War. And it was finally in the late 60s and early 70s that there became an actual federal holiday for Memorial Day, because it not only represented the Civil War, but it represented those in World War One and World War II and those who lost their lives in places such as Vietnam and Korea a day of remembrance of what we take so for granted, life. We struggle as a country, it seems, to grasp, to grasp the privilege of life. We, we lack the ability, it seems, as a country to respect one another enough to value life enough that we would put somebody else's needs over our own. We have fallen so far from the vision that our forefathers cast so long ago. We have fallen so far from the vision of the leaders of our country back at the beginning of the 20th century. Those people who went away as boys to fight a war on foreign soil, in World War One and World War II, those who fought in those wars had a vision of what life should be like. And in our actions and in our selfishness and in our individualism that is known across the United States, we have failed to realize one key factor, that they did all of that because they believed in something better than themselves. They believed in an opportunity to serve others other than themselves and I believe we as a nation have lost that in John chapter 15 verses 12 through 13 Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly Father, as we seek today to look at Memorial Day not as a time of only solemn remembrance for those who have gave their lives for this country and for our freedoms and our democracy. But we also pray and we ask you, painstakingly, Lord, seek for you to give us an understanding of what it truly means to lay down our lives for others. That in your commandment in John chapter 15 and in Paul's explanation of what that means in Romans chapter 12, I pray that today that you give me the words to give to your people an understanding, a practical application of how to live their lives in looking on how to serve one another in giving up themselves the way that Christ taught us to do. I ask you this today as we go through this message. Give me words to say and the people, ears to hear. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's look... Uh, for a few moments to understand uh, a few things. So um, on Wednesday evening, I know we went over Romans chapter 12 in our Bible study, but I really felt compelled and led to go over that a little bit more to give some more practical application to that. So we're going to get to that in a few moments. But one of my homework assignments, as I mentioned uh, on Wednesday evening, was the four types of love mentioned in the Greek language. And I looked those up because it coincides directly to our uh, passage in John that we just read. And there are four words to describe love in Greek. And there's only one word in the English language to describe love. Um, and the first word is agape love. Agape love. And that is a love, a truly self- sacrificing, dying to oneself, serving somebody else type of love. And we see that in perfection in God in Jesus Christ. The next type of love is philos, love. It, it's, it's a love, um, it's a brotherly type love, a, a connection type love. And that, my friends, whenever you see the word in the Bible that says brothers, it, philos is actually used interchangeably at times with the word adelphoid to symbolize that that brotherly love, friendship love, is a bond that should not be breakable. Furthermore, we all, in in Christ's kingdom, as the body of Christ, not just Darlington, but all churches everywhere that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, should fellowship with that brotherly love. That's how strong of a connection it must be, because we are bound together in Jesus Christ. The third type of love, and and these aren't in any specific order per se, but the third type of love, the Greek Brings to light is the word "storge," storge love, and it means a protection type of love, and, and the 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 best example we can give is a parental type love. Or as a husband loves his wife and his children. And I know I'm not trying to be misogynistic or or anti-feminism or anything like that. But by nature, God has created man to be the protector. The man to be the the facilitator of a family-type love. And that's the storge-type love, a protection love. And the last word for love in Greek is eros. And it literally means a romantic-type love. A love of a man to a woman uh, in in, in intimate relationship, uh, of marriage, if you will, through a romantic-type love. And what we see, if you read through the Bible, is the love of God is manifested in those four different categories. All four. When he looks at the nation of Israel as his bride, and he looks at Jesus Christ, his son, and Jesus' fellowships with his fellow disciples, you see agape, philos, sorge, and eros in that the whole Bible. That's how God displays love. But in this specific passage, in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, the two words for love used in this passage are agape and philos. And they are used, believe it or not, John uses these... Somewhat interchangeably almost as if they're synonymous terms at times in his gospel If you read the text in the Greek and you go through the conjugations You'll see that these words based on the context and can sometimes be used interchangeably Because Jesus is using them And, and although we, we have to understand that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and actually though In, in, in the Greek it says greater love has no one than this that he laid on his life for his friends the word friends is actually a conjugation of the word philos and that's why we have this understanding of love is this love that Jesus is talking about is that this, this friendship love is based on the sacrifice of God Jesus Christ came and he lived and he paid the ultimate price The ransom for our our souls had to be cleansed so that we could have eternal communion with the Father, and Christ did that. And that's why he says, this commandment I give to you is to love, agape love, fully self-sacrificing love one another, so you will be able to experience this friendship, love, this bond of love together. In verse 12, we we see that, but I think we don't quite get to understanding until we go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul explains this in practical application. He says, we must think of others above ourselves. That's self-sacrificing love. And then he goes on in verses 5 through 8 to explain how Jesus Christ did just that. He sacrificed himself Not just for our sins, but to give us this beautiful picture of what laying his life life down. And this friendship, sacrificing love that he did. He gave himself up not only to to God the Father in humility, but he laid himself down for his friends. For those who would believe in him. And that's why we have this understanding that we can be friends of God through Jesus Christ. Because he died for us. And he did it willingly on his own volition. And we must choose to love on our own volition. We cannot be forced to love. I, I, you know, Truth is truth, no matter who says it. And, and, I, and I'm not a, I don't believe in magic. I don't believe in genies. But I will say this, that as humorous as this context is going to be. If you ever watch the movie Aladdin, the original Disney movie Aladdin, he, the genie pops out and he talks to Aladdin and he says, he makes one statement. Of things he can't do. He can't bring anybody back from the dead and he can't make anybody fall in love. Those are the two things that he cannot do. You know why? Because those are things reserved for God. You cannot force somebody to love you. No matter what. You can't. It's that person's free agency and free choice to make the decision to love. And in those four different types of love, Ultimately, we should get to where we sacrifice for one another. But some of us will never be able to do that. And that's another story for another day. But nobody can make you love somebody else. Even if somebody is sacrificially loving you, you may not be able to give them that same love in return. And we are hindered at times. We are hindered. We are hindered in love for one another based on external circumstances. Sometimes past experiences. Sometimes Sometimes we are hurt by one person and it severely impacts our ability to love somebody else 10 or 15, 20 years later. Because love is vulnerability. When we have love for somebody, self-sacrificing love, we put ourselves out there to be hurt. And that's why we have a hard time loving each other. That's why we have a hard time sacrificing what we want for the good or betterment of somebody else. Because we want what we want. Not only are we selfish, but we have a hard time understanding why can't we have what we want when instead we should be asking, what can we do for somebody else? A lot of times people love expecting reciprocity of that same love. So their love is motivated. By what they may get in return in the future. That is not true self-sacrificing love. That is not even true philos friendship, love. We're going to build on this topic of love. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 7, and you read Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 13, you see some practical Examples of what love is and what love isn't and how to accomplish those things. Love is patient, love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter is read often at weddings to symbolize this union of a husband and wife to love one another till death do their part, till death do they part. But what I want us to understand, if we say that we love someone. And we are not honest with ourselves, that we would not sacrifice what we want for them, then we don't have love. And I know some people might, like, well, Pastor, what do you know? You're you're young, you're a young man, you don't know anything. You're right, I don't. What God does, and that's what his word teaches. The Bible teaches that true love is self sacrificing in verse 13 he says there's no love there's no greater love than one sacrificing oneself there's no act of love greater than one who sacrifices himself for someone else because what that truly is is humbly submitting oneself to another it's hard for us to be humble because we're prideful by nature in our sinful nature. We're selfish by nature. But to bring us to a truly vulnerable position, as I mentioned a few moments ago, a truly vulnerable position to put ourselves out there, to give 100% of ourselves, not expecting anything in return, it's a scary thing to put ourselves out there. But that's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for everybody in this world. He humbly sacrificed himself following the will of the lord submitting himself without any pride led like a sheep to the slaughter or a lamb to the slaughter so that he could die on the cross knowing that not everybody would receive him but that's the same action that we should be pursuing that same humility and love and self-sacrifice for others is the love that the bible teaches us to Marriage typically is the best example of this love because ultimately you have two people, a man and a woman, submitting willfully to one another, putting themselves vulnerable to be hurt, vulnerable to be cast out, vulnerable to be alienated, and they continue to submit themselves in love to the other. In many relationships are loveless because one person gives of themselves 100% the other person takes and they never give. And that scars the individual. And it's hard for them to ever love again. A broken heart is a hard thing to heal. Only God can do that because of his self-sacrificing love for us. When the Holy Spirit resides in us as a believer, what we have is an understanding that we can be transformed, and that leads us into Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's look at a few things in this passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, and I always like to say this, uh, and I was listening, uh, I was, when, I, when you watch David Jeremiah, he always says, if you see it therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? While I was, I was driving up here, I listened to... To Alistair Begg, uh, he's a pastor at Cleveland, Ohio, and he was he was preaching and he came across a passage in Romans chapter 8, and uh, instead of therefore, the translation he was reading is, so then As you have to ask, what he says is you have to ask yourself, so what? What's it therefore? Why? Why is this a big deal? So we have to ask us, what is this therefore? And if you if you read the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, if you've been a part of our Wednesday evening Bible studies, and we've been going through that, but if you read it on your own you will see that Paul spends The first eight chapters, building this theological framework to explain the depravity of man, to to explain the need for a Savior, to explain what it looks like to be justified and sanctified in Jesus Christ, and ultimately glorified. And then in chapters 9-11, he gives us this beautiful picture of of the nation of Israel and their role in salvation, and how... The Jews rejected Jesus Christ and it opened the door for the Gentiles to come in and receive Jesus Christ. So now there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And now, as he gets to that point, he goes into Roman school and he says, Therefore, because of all that stuff I already told you, therefore, brethren, Adelphoi, by the mercies of God. So I have to ask you. We have to reflect, on. I mean, he says, therefore, brethren, he's, he's addressing this to the to the church in Rome that he's never visited as, as of yet, he's never visited this church, and, and so he, he doesn't know what they know or what they don't know, so he's writing this letter in, in a loving act, a sacrificing act to, to explain to them the oracles of God and, and the scriptures, and, to, and as he's writing this letter, he, he calls them brethren. And and he uses the word Delphoi. That's brotherly love type, type language. These brothers of his in Christ. And he recognizes them as brothers in Christ. So that further accentuates that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no distinction between ethnicity. There's no distinction between anyone. So I have a question. Do we show favoritism? Because if we do, we don't have love in our hearts. Do we hold undue prejudice? If so, we don't have love in our hearts. The love of Christ does not indwell in us if we have a prejudice or a favoritism toward one person or one gender or one type of person or or whatever the case may be. If we have a prejudice against a specific ethnic group, we cannot claim to have the love of Jesus Christ in our life. It's not biblical. It doesn't exist. James... The half-brother of Christ, in chapter 2, verse 9, James says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We are not to show favoritism or partiality to anyone, but we are to treat everybody with the same love that we've been given by the Lord. That's a hard thing to do. I fail miserably all the time. We are naturally drawn, because of our human nature, towards specific people. Birds of a feather flock together has more truth to it than we would like to admit. But it should not dictate our personal feelings and whether or not we should help somebody else. Just because we predominantly hang out with a certain group of people, like-minded people, doesn't mean that we shouldn't have love for everyone else. It says we should present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, reasonable service. It means we are supposed to bring ourselves humbly to God. Bring ourselves humbly to God. The context of this language, the the the, the prose, if you will, that Paul is using to write this letter, he's speaking of an act of contrition, and an act of humility, and bringing a sacrifice to God. An Old Testament language comes to mind. We bring ourselves as a living sacrifice. We're supposed to lay down our lives for His service. It's an act of humility, of selfless service to the Lord. It's an act of love. God, when we present our bodies for His service, it's a living sacrifice. We, when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, our love for God for what He's done for us should prompt us to desire to serve Him and only Him. We move past our selfishness. We move past our pride. We move past every hindrance and encumbrance along the way to show our love for God the Father. of humility to God. We offer our whole lives, all of ourselves, every ounce of our beings, everything we do we should give to the Lord. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 to do all things as if we were doing it unto the Lord because Scripture testifies about Scripture and he's trying to bring into practical application what it means to present ourselves a living sacrifice to God. The problem is, We have a problem giving our whole self to God. We want to hold a little bit back. We have a problem giving all of our, uh, loosely holding on to all of our possessions on the earth because we want to hold a little bit back. The problem with us is we have too much thinking about me and not enough thinking about we. That's why it's hard to look. We think too much about me and not enough about we. What is best for all of us? He uses the words holy and acceptable. And I look back to the Old Testament language of a pleasing aroma before the Lord. The, 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 the word actually holy is hagion in Greek, and um, it, it, it's, it specifies two different types of, of uh, words here, sanctified and consecrated. What we have to understand is if you're sanctified, you're set apart, and if you're consecrated, you're reserved specifically for the service of the Lord. So basically, hagion in this context, holy and, uh, holy and acceptable, is basically holy, consecrated, acceptable, sanctified, set apart for the work of the Lord. Specifically for the service of the Lord, not to be used for anything else. Paul is telling us we should do this with our bodies as an act of love to God. And then in the, in the King James it says a reasonable service, and in the New American Standard it says spiritual service. What that literally means is, in the original language the word means it's an expected service. As a recompense, a moral obligation. And if you look at the culture, the Eastern culture, Jesus is Jewish. The Middle Eastern culture even today exists. That if somebody gives their if somebody saves your life, you're indebted to them with your life. And that's the cultural connotation that this brings. But once we accept Jesus Christ Atonement for our sins We owe him our lives We do, we are indebted to him now, Why do you think Paul calls himself a bond slave The language he uses His whole life he leaves He gives his whole life to the Lord As an act of service Because he understands the context That Jesus Christ saved his life So now he is indebted to his Lord And Savior and his Master For the remaining part of his life That's true love True love. A couple, couple more things here in verse 2. There's three words that we're going to focus on in verse 2. Conform, transform, and renewing. The, the word conform, and, and I, 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 I'm going to mess this up probably The Suske Matizo. And it literally implies a cookie cutter, a form fit, a, 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 a predetermined plan. And he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be a reflection of society. Be different, is what he's saying. Don't succumb to the uh, lustful desires to assimilate to your environment. Being conformed means you let external influences influence your internal being. So you let the experiences going on around you influence the way you think and influence the way you act and influence all these things. It's an outside-inside reflection. And he's saying, don't be like that. Don't be jaded because the world hurts you. Don't, be, don't let yourself be fooled and be conformed to going along with the status quo of society. Don't be like that because that's going to take away your ability to love. External influences impact our internal processes is the best way to look at that. Society teaches us individualism. It teaches us humanism. It teaches us that we exist Because of our own efforts. He teaches us that if you have a dream, you chase that dream. What if it doesn't coincide with what the Lord wants? What if our desires don't coincide with what the Lord wants? Are we willing to let go of our desires to serve the Lord? Because if we love God, if we truly worship Him, we wouldn't do that society as a whole, this world, this secular world, flies contradictory to the face of the Bible. That's why Paul says don't conform to the world. But he says instead, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is transform? The word in Greek for transform is metamorphosis. It, it was the same Greek we get the word metamorphosis from. So you should have a metamorphosis. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Metamorphosis, and for all you science people out there, is an inside-out change. Stuff, Something changes inside of us. So what we should do is let God come in and change us and rearrange us so that our actions are a reflection of our internals. Because that's what will defile us or not defile us, as Jesus speaks in the Gospels. And additionally... The word uh, metamorphoni is the same word used in Mark, chapter 9, when it talks about Jesus Christ's transfiguration on the mountain. The transfiguration of Christ was a change that the the three disciples saw, and that's the same purpose that Paul uses in his letter to the church in Rome. We need to let our actions reflect our internal change that Jesus Christ has changed in us. If we don't have... That reflect an internal change, we must ask ourselves: one, do we love God? And two, do we even believe in what Jesus Christ did? Has he changed our lives? And if he hasn't, we can fix that with Jesus' help. The last word I want us to look at is renewing. It means it's an ing word, so in English that connotates a continuous action. And in the original Greek, the context is a continuous action. And what we have to understand is it's a consistent act. It's committed to constant renewal. How do we renew our minds? We read our Bibles. We pray. We seek the Lord's favor and His will. We train ourselves up as spiritual babies and spiritual children, teenagers, and adults so that we raise ourselves up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's what that means, the constant renewing of our minds. But I have another talk about love real real quick many of you know or know of robbie zacharias and he's one of the greatest apologists to live in our time as what most people would would agree um and uh he's a christian man he's a christian apologist he passed away this, this past week he passed away and he had cancer and um time a few years ago and he answered a question in church Um, he was speaking live at a a church uh, and they were broadcasting live like this and and, um, he talked about a problem and answering questions the question he answered had to do with uh, homosexuality we're not going to talk about that topic today but I want to use the method that he used to answer the question. He he answered it in three three different phases, three different panels. And the first panel he answered it is, it was in a sociological panel. There's a sociological side to confrontation or answering questions. And the sociological dilemma that Christians face, and everyone faces, is how do we define our culture. How do we define our culture? And, and, and Robbie's estimation and his extended learning, and, and, and I researched this myself to, to back this up, um, there are three main culture groups in the world today. And they have always been. There's only three different types of cultures. There's a Theonos culture, which is comes from the Greek, Theos, God, and Nos, Law. And that means that everything is divine, directed, uh, other words similar to a theocracy, where everything is based on what God wants, and everyone underneath that government, that governing style, and that culture submits to the will of the Lord. Our world today, especially in Western civilization, is not, not under a theonomous culture. So the second type of culture is a heteronomous culture. Heteronomous, and it comes from the Greek heteros and nomos another or other law, and it means that everybody in that culture submits to the rule of one or a group of people, and you see that in the the Middle Eastern, the truly Islamic countries, um, Iran, and uh, and other countries like that where they have an ayatollah or a a kingship or even a monarchy in in England, and, and well, England doesn't run like that, but other places where there's a true, legitimate monarch, another person rules over a group of people and tells them what to do, when they can eat, how they can dress, and everything else. As a heteronomous society or culture, we don't have that in America or Western civilization. So, the third type of culture is autonomous or auto, a, autonomy. And it comes from the Greek word autos, which means self, and namas, meaning law or governance. And when we have a culture of autonomous culture, what we have is a conflict. And this is the conflict that's going on in, in society and in our country today. And this has been going on for several years. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, we all succumb to this autonomous culture because it's the way of our society and Western civilization. And what it does is it brings us to a dilemma, a sociological dilemma. And that, that dilemma is very simple. If you and I have a disagreement, you give me your position, and I give you my position. And in our autonomy, what we have, where we get to our our issue, and it shows a lack of love, is that I'm not willing to listen to your argument, and you're not willing to listen to mine. And it's not because we don't want to disagree. It's because in my autonomy— I want to be able to have my own opinion. But when you give me your opinion and your autonomy, and I don't like it, I want to switch from an autonomous culture to a heteronomous culture, and I want to tell you what you can and can't believe. And then vice versa. If my explanation, or my definition, or my particular point of view is not shared by you, In this example, then you would come at me, and in your autonomy, would not let me have my autonomy, but you would force me, you're autonomous, but you would force me into a heteronormous culture, where you influence my decision. And that's why we have fights in our country today, and in our church. And that's why churches fight with each other. The biggest issue in our lives, while there is no love between us, is because we don't respect each other's beliefs and feelings. There is a right and a wrong. The Bible teaches us that. There is a ethically right, morally right, and wrong. The Bible teaches those ethics and morals. But one thing we must realize, even if we would like to be under a a theonomy, a God-directed culture, we still have free agency. And in that free agency, we have free agency to hurt or we have free agency to love. So I ask you today, in remembering those fallen soldiers who gave us the ability to have freedom and autonomous culture, Do we honor their sacrifice today by giving others the same respect that we demand for ourselves? More importantly, do we give Jesus Christ the respect for his sacrifice for us? Do we give him the respect when we call ourselves Christians that we show him the same love that he showed us? Are we willing to lay ourselves down and get rid of our autonomy and submit to his theonomy and submit to God's direction? That is the real question. Truth be told, the reason we struggle in our lives is because we don't know how to love because Jesus doesn't reside in our hearts. And if he does reside in our hearts, we have a hard time loving because we want to hold on to a portion of ourselves and not fully submit ourselves to the Lord. We want to hang on to our autonomy and not submit humbly to his theonomy. And it reflects in our actions with others, with With our families, our friends, our church family. That's what we're lacking. So today, I'd like for us to reflect on where we stand with God. Where do we stand with God? We're going to listen to some music here briefly and meditate, have a time of meditation and reflection on the words today. And I want us to think where do we fall in those cultures? Are we completely autonomous? Or do we have enough love for God, for what He's done for us, that we submit to His theonomous?